From KIOS in Omaha and Exorbing Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, I have a conversation with Nebraska musician Andrew Bailey, whose debut album Wasteland came out last year. More than me trying to make a message with anything that I'm writing, it is a reflection of my experiences. You know, And I think that's where a lot of people get it wrong, because a lot of people want to say, oh, I like your music. I've had people say this to me. Oh, I like your music, but I hate your politics or whatever. And I'm just like, cool, change the channel. You know, I don't need to be anything for anybody. Bailey discusses his music as a way of processing the world around him and how he strikes a balance between societal concerns and making art. Stick around for my conversation with Andrew Bailey right here on Riverside Chats. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I have a conversation with Nebraska musician Andrew Bailey, whose debut album Wasteland came out last year. He's currently living in Omaha and performing live streams until COVID-19 concerns have abated. Here's a clip from the titular track on his album. just the reality how have you been in this crazy time we're living in i'm really lucky man i'm very blessed and fortunate um uh i i've i've you know the the silver lining for me and this is only my personal perspective the silver lining for me is that i've realized that i don't really need to take every gig that comes my way you know um like i mentioned i think before we started recording um my my teaching has been going really well so there's i've got a a nice nice group of students who really uh all different levels and ages but uh it's been really good 
doing the Zoom thing, and um, I've got some great students. So that's that's really awesome. Um, we've uh, myself and Ali Peeler and David Hawkins have been doing the uh, live streaming thing uh, almost every Saturday since COVID started. We skipped a few of them due to schedule stuff and uh, uh, different different reasons, but. Um, We've been doing that, and so we've been raising money for the community. We raised over three thousand uh, dollars for for people that are out of work, uh, especially before like the checks got there. So we felt really strongly in doing that. But you know, you got to pay your people too. So uh, definitely made sure everybody got a little something. So that helped. And uh, you know, like I said, uh, it's I've just been really fortunate. I've started doing a couple gigs here and there. Um, couple socially distanced things and some outdoor gigs have kind of come up uh got to play down in falconwood for the first time uh, last week and that was that was really fun that's a great venue especially for the times uh that we live in now and then there's been a little bit of commission work i i, I was uh again um one of my neighbors again this came from uh it's really interesting i know my neighbors now you know yeah. have you had that experience do you you know your neighbors well i've i've had uh some uh, first of all let me say i have chickens and my neighbors <laughs> got chickens because they saw my chickens and that that I caused some it. strife so right on well the well i moved in uh to the place i'm in now with my partner in november and we didn't really meet we met a few of the neighbors before then but we weren't really close with any of the neighbors before covid started and uh, you know uh, I, I hate to put try to put a positive spin on a really uh, awful thing that's happened, you know, obviously um, uh, at the same time. That's my new thing. I try to say at the same time instead of but because <laughs> it like just completely disqualifies everything before it. But at the same time as that, you know, one of the silver linings for me uh, and, and, and I, I think I can speak for my partner as well is that we know the neighbors, you know, uh, we have, uh, one of our neighbors bakes bread for us, uh, every Saturday, uh, we, we've made some cookies for people and it's just, it, everybody just really has a good time and, and it's, it feels like a community. And I, I don't think, I don't think I've had that since I was a child. Well, it's interesting you say, uh, not to put too positive a spin on this crazy time even too, but I mean, cause I, we need that though, don't we? We have to find some kind of positivity to get through all of this. It, it depends it depends how what you how you're putting the positive spin on it, I guess. Sure. I mean, songs and music are so I mean, something just instinctual about our need to relate to each other through music or like if we're all listening to the same song, there's that magical feeling when a whole crowd is responding to the same thing, which we don't really have a whole lot in our culture right now. I was just talking to somebody else about that. It's just like we don't seem to have as much incentive for shared cultural landmarks at all anymore. It's just all sort of I'm going to find my weird corner of the Internet that I'm going to be obsessed with for 10 years uh, and I don't even need to share it. But I mean, you, I mean, music is kind of there's some element of that. But to do any kind of performance, you're sort of trying to find that shared landmark and tap into that, which is always kind of magical, I assume. Um, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And, and I think that you have the option in our society to, to, to subscribe to that point of view or to not. And, and I choose to not to not because what you said is untrue. It's very true. Um, I just feel that when I when I write music, um, first off, I don't feel I'm not responsible for writing it. And, and, I, and I can't take credit for this thought. Um, uh, I th think Tom Waits put it very eloquently. He's one of my favorite songwriters as well. Um, uh, but he subscribes to the idea and, and, and I, I agree with him that a song is like a child, right? It's already formed. It's already, you know, it, it's going to come into existence. 
And our job as artists and songwriters is to strengthen our antennas because ultimately that's what we are. We're antennas, you know, um, th this, this creative energy, you know, we can make the muscle stronger that creates it, you know, but uh, essentially it's not us creating, you know, it's, and, and if we really listen and try to bring the things out that are in our head, you know, we might have some happy accidents along the way. But um, for me, I just try to write music that I like, you know, and, and if I have a piece of art that's a, that's broader than music, uh, I'm just trying to make it uh, uh, something that I like. And currently I, I haven't released anything any broader than just music. I am uh, currently working on a music video and I, I get to say this on your podcast uh, and on this, on the show that uh, I am actually going to release a single uh, within the next couple months here. So that's exciting. And it's going to be um, a video uh, as well, and a seven inch uh, uh, recording. Uh, so I'm excited to be putting that together. And so that's why I speak in terms of like, if there's anything more than music, I'm not, I, I you know, I can't really try to do anything groundbreaking. I, I'm just trying to, you know, do something that I like, you know, what does it mean to me? The The why is such an important question when it comes to art. And it almost takes it not almost, it definitely takes an audience or some sort of reciprocation of to, to kind of close that loop of, uh, okay, we're putting this out in the universe and now it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the observation makes it real. You know, it's it, no matter how small your circle is of people that are going to listen to it. Like if I release something, maybe 20 people will listen to it, but they're what they get out of it closes that loop. And, and then, and then whatever it means to them, it can mean something different to me that's not the point. It's not like, what does this exactly mean? You know, but, it's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> well, but I mean, just the very fact that they're responding to it. I mean, I guess, yeah, it doesn't necessarily matter what it is they're responding to, but there is something about music where, I mean, a hundred people can be listening to somebody play a song and they can all have some different opinion. But the fact that we're all responding to it at the same time, that seems magical every time. You hit the nail on the head right there. You know, and and that's and that's what I'm saying. And it, it doesn't even doesn't even take them to like reach out to the artist and say, wow, this meant something to me. It's just they can relate to it, how they're going to relate to it. And that's part of the process, in my opinion. So let's go back to the very beginning then. When I mean, did you have this sort of profound relationship with music as a kid or was there a moment where it sort of hit you? Um, yes and no. Uh, I I started. um as a small child, as, as a baby, I was very fortunate that my mom had a, a baby grand piano uh, in our living room. And, uh, you know, we had a little duplex, so it wasn't a huge house, you know, so it took up a lot of the space. But she really, she loved playing. And, you know, she won't hate me for saying this because she knows it's true. You know, she would, she would stumble her way through music that she had learned 15, 20 years before that. And, and um, I would just sit down and there, there are pictures of me as a baby. I don't remember all of this, obviously, but uh, I would sit down and just plunk around at the piano. And, and um, then as I got older, I learned to skate. I skate when I was two and I was really into hockey when I was young. Um, and, and I started playing goalie. Um, and that's, that was my passion, man. I wanted to be the next Patrick Waugh. You know, I wanted to play for the Montreal Canadiens. You know, that was it. And, uh, we, I grew up in Cleveland. We ended up moving to, to Bellevue in, um, uh, 98. I was going into eighth grade, uh, just turning 13, you know, kind of a very pivotal time. And, and so I played, um, 
hockey for that year. And I went from an area that was like, it's, it's kind of interesting because if I had stayed in Cleveland, my passion for hockey might have just overtaken it because there were like 30, 40 teams all in this peewee league uh, all around Northeast Ohio. And you didn't have to travel very far. And every, every place, every little community had a hockey rink and, they, and, a, and a peewee team. And it was very competitive. I got to Nebraska and there were you could play in-house or you could you could be on the travel team. And so we started traveling and I was very competitive. You know, I was like, I wanted to be the dude. And um, I'm telling you way more than about music. No, right no, no, no. Now. Keep but, going. It's interesting. But, but so so we were in Minnesota uh, every every weekend or so and, um, you know, put a terrible strain on my parents. Uh, uh, you know, we weren't destitute, but we, we didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the team would stay at the Hyatt and stuff. And a couple of the families would stay at like the Super 8, you know, and, and I was always upset. Why can't we stay with the team? Anyway, uh, just like a little little brat, almost teenager. Um, and I was. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, uh, there was a kid that brought a guitar uh, to one of the hockey tournaments uh, up in Minnesota. It was actually Albert Lee, Minnesota. And uh, his dad could play a few tunes. We thought he was really great. He could play like Iron Man and some of this Black Sabbath stuff. And and then they passed the guitar around the room. And I had no idea what I was doing. But that was that it was just natural, you know. And by uh, that May, I finally convinced my parents to buy me my first guitar as an early birthday present. My birthday is in August. So it was a very early present. And uh, they... I remember May 1st, 1999, I got my first guitar. And by that time next year, I was not playing hockey anymore. Um, and by the time I was 15, I knew that that's what I wanted to do, you know, and it's a, it's, it's, it's kind of an embarrassing story uh, if I think about it now, but when I was a freshman in high school, um, which was actually the next year, so I hadn't been playing that long. I'd learned how to play a few things. And the one thing I would learned how to play start to finish every single note was stairway to heaven. <laughs> Wow. That's a long one too. And, and I had to, I would be upset if my mom wasn't there to pick me up, like mom, you're not here to pick me up from school. And, and I would run home, um, uh, up Bellevue Boulevard. We used to live, uh, on, uh, at camp Brewster where, which is now a ranger's house. We were the caretakers. My mom was working for Fontenelle forest and I would run home and I would plug in my guitar and I'll play every note to stairway to heaven. And that was like the thing that I had to do. So by the time I kind of got over that and started, you know, uh, uh, playing a little bit more, it was like, yeah, I think this is what I want to do. And uh, and and the rest is just like, um, you know, you discover different things. And if you have an open mind, your taste can change with, you know, uh, how you develop. And, you know, I went through I was like really into, you know, classic rock and stuff when I was a uh, uh, in, in high school and that was all I wanted to do. And then I got into jazz and, and then um, kind of started forming bands and stuff and formed up a band called the jazz holes with uh, some of my friends uh, from back then was going to take a year off before I went to college. And then I ended up taking nine off. Uh, so anyway, you know, then by that time, you know, different influences come in and they kind of affect you. And if you're, if you're trying to become, you know, the best version of yourself that you can be, you got to have an open mind because your tastes are going to change. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with musician Andrew Bailey, whose debut album Wasteland came out in 2019. Here's a clip from a song from that album entitled Cloudy Days. 
Guitar playing and hockey feel like they have very different energies to them to me. You know, like I, I wouldn't have thought that that'd be quite depends the... on what style you're playing in guitar or hockey. Well, even just I don't know, like Stairway to Heaven doesn't seem to me like yeah, this is this no. is the replacement for hockey no, here. No, no, uh, and I'm and I and I am embarrassed that I told that story. Um, <laughs> if if you'd asked me uh, before before this uh, interview, I, I'd, if I was going to tell that story, I'd be like. Hell no, <laughs> but I did. There you uh, go. No, I'm glad it's out there. I mean, so I mean, were you like when you were a kid who was into hockey? It's, you said you started like you learned how to skate when you were two. Is that what you said? That's like uh, like prodigy age to start learning something, right? Uh, well, so I had three cousins who were older than me, uh, who were all big time hockey players. One was in high school at that point, and it's kind of funny. It's come full circle. He lives in Houston now. His name's Paul, and we've reconnected uh, because that side of the family. I was estranged from for years. Um, you know, everybody's got their family stuff, mm-hmm. but we've reconnected recently as adults. And uh, now we do uh, Skype guitar lessons together. Uh, cool. So it's kind of like see, he, he, he influenced me to play hockey when I was a little kid because he was the oldest out of the out of the three brothers that were my cousins. And and now I'm showing him guitar. So that's it's pretty cool. And he's good. He's good. He's a good student. And so, but music, so when you get into that, it's not, but just by nature of not being a sport, I mean, it's competitive in one sense, but it's very different kind of competition that you're up against other people in, right? So, I mean. Um, you know, it music should never be a competition. Art should never be a competition, honestly. Um, it can be competitive, especially so in 2012, I moved to New York um and and ended up uh i was again very fortunate i got some gigs out there and and was able to make a living uh not much of one but was able to survive just by playing music and through those opportunities and meeting people you know i got uh some opportunities to tour around and to be the worst musician in the room for a few years which was which was great and to um 
you know, tour with some Grammy winning artists, which, which was, uh, an incredible experience, uh, and, and, you know, instrumental in my development. Um, and it is competitive in a way because there's lots of people that are trying to do the same thing you're doing. And, uh, when I moved to New York and I started taking just these regular gigs that would come my way, uh, you know, you would have these, these people being like, okay, here's the 30 songs we might do. We'll probably do at least 15 or 20 of them. Uh, you know, gigs in two days pays 50 bucks and, uh, you know, show up to the gig, no rehearsal. And you knew that even the people and this isn't right either, but like, there's an idea that like, especially when you're in like the sideman hustle, I wasn't really trying to do the artist thing out there. I was trying to, uh, my goal was to, was to travel and play with the baddest possible, you know? And, and, um, I got a little taste of that, but you know, I knew that if I showed up to that gig with the 30 tunes, you know, in three days, I knew that even the cats that, you know, were the last call that could do that gig, they would show up and know the f- out of those tunes. So I wasn't even what we would say sad, you know, until I could do that. And that was a big jump from the things that I was doing in Omaha and, uh, you know, that kind of helped to shape me, too. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting, um, everything along the way. And I guess I'm sort of approaching middle age now. I'm, I'm 34, so about to be 35 this month. And uh, it's, you, you, I, I try not to look back except for, except to learn, you know. Uh, I try not to be sentimental about anything necessarily, uh, but I, I, I want to learn from my experiences and not just my mistakes, but I want, I, I realize that I am, and we all are a accumulation of our experiences of our lived experiences. And when you realize as a musician, and from my perspective, what I realized is that was enough, you know, yeah, you got to put in the work, you gotta, you gotta learn the songs, you gotta have some sort of facility. But once you find your voice and once you're cool with like your DNA, like it's just part of your personality that can come out. And then that can be enough. That's why I don't get hung up with genres. That's why I don't get like you can read my bio and I actually don't say what genre I'm in. Hmm. You know, I'm influenced by uh, especially my music now is very much influenced by, uh, you know, funk and soul. Um, There are, uh, you know, it's not jazz. There are some sort of sometimes jazz voicings or harmonies. Like if you would see me play some of this stuff on guitar, you might say, oh, that's a jazz voicing. Well, so you say you're cool with your DNA now, and you seem very, I don't know, at peace with yourself. But Thank you. I, I assume that was a struggle because some people, it takes them their entire lives to even get toward that. How did you find peace, and how did you get cool with your DNA to get this sort of zen attitude you have? There's an old saying, the more you know, the more there is to know. Mm-hmm. Now, there's two reasons for that saying as far as I can see. One is on the face of it. The more you know literally the more you have to keep track of right but we can think about it in a different way as well the more i know so everything that i learn every new experience or every new piece of information that i pick up musically or in whatever walk of life i'm 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 trying to better myself in that door that i open opens 10 other doors and a lot of that came through new york you know i was playing upright bass trying to be a jazz upright bassist when i moved to new york as well and very quickly i saw the level of uh jazz musicians out there that were bassists and i 
I recognize that that would be at least another decade for me and definitely eight hours a day in the shed or practicing. And that was uh, also a world where I wouldn't play guitar and I wasn't prepared to make that sacrifice. Uh, but that's okay. I don't, I don't have to be, you know, a, a great upright bass player. That doesn't have to be what I do. It's it, it, the, New York kind of showed me in a way uh, partially. And I think it does this with a lot of people, you know, partially like what I am, what I'm not like, I, I ended up gigging in like the gospel world. I played at churches and that's how I fell in with the folks uh, uh, who I ended up touring with was a group called Corey Henry and the Funk Apostles. Uh, Corey Henry being the keyboard player, the organist from Snarky Puppy. Um, and so I had some great experiences touring with those guys. And it was because I allowed myself to get into this gospel world. And I'm not, I'm not religious. I'm an anti-theist Jew. And the church world is very foreign to me, except I learned a lot from the music. I learned a lot from the people there. And especially when I started touring with Corey, I learned so much because I was the worst musician in the room for three years. And I, and I say that as a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, I wouldn't trade those experiences for anything, but the city kind of showed me, Hey, you know what? This is the world that you're really going to excel in. And this is what the need is. And I had to kind of let go and, and not be so concerned about being in jazz clubs, playing standards, you know, and it was a good thing for me. I'm talking today with Andrew Bailey, whose debut album wasteland came out last year. Stick around after the break for the rest of the conversation right here on Riverside chats. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Andrew Bailey, whose debut album, Wasteland, came out in 2019. Here's a clip from one of the songs on the album called If They Knew. eventually made it back to Omaha. What's that story? Well, um, after I came off the road with Corey, uh, I ended up 
uh, uh, living uh, up in Maine for a little while. Uh, I, I did that so that I wouldn't have rent to pay my, my folks who live up there um, in rural Maine. And so I lived with them for a little while, did some did some chores. Uh, and they were they were kind of empty nesters because uh, I was 17 when I graduated. They moved up to Milwaukee from Bellevue, you know, I know everybody's all over the place. If you if you got your storyboard with all the little <laughs> yarn connecting the pictures and stuff, like I don't know if you've seen Dark, but there, that's yeah. uh, it's kind of like that. <laughs> so uh, they moved to Milwaukee uh, in in 2003, and I was 17, and my mom was kind of like, "Oh, he'll be up in six months." And so I didn't do that. And then um, I figured I talked to them, and 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 my mom was like, "You know what? We'd love to have you live here for a little while." And I was like, cool. So I commuted back and forth between uh, Maine and New York to record uh, the record that I released last year uh, called Wasteland. Um, And I gigged around Maine uh, quite a bit. I had a regular gig down in Portland, Maine. uh, And then Maine is like a big, small town. So you just drive to all the places and then everybody hears about you and you just do the thing and you just go from town to town to town. Uh, You could do a tour of Maine and, you know, uh, it it could it's. It's cool. People are cool up there. Uh, people are also cool here. So I didn't mention my mentor. Uh, his name is Dana Murray. He's a uh, drummer who lives in uh, the Omaha area. But uh, he was one of the he was actually the person that was like, get your ass to New York, you know, before I went. And so it was kind of uh, studying with him was very important in my development as well. Uh, you know, it was definitely a life changing thing uh, getting to study with him. We started talking again um, uh, in when I was living in Maine, and it started making a lot of sense to me. You know, uh, Omaha is centrally located. Um, it's the cost of living is nice. Uh, people are nice. Uh, a lot has happened here since I left, uh, and you know, it's it's one of those things where um, it made sense to go back where I came up. And once I once I came back and visited, I was I, I really kind of fell in love with Omaha again. You know. Uh, it's 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 generally a good place you know we see what's been happening um in the last little bit here and there's some disturbing things uh, obviously i'm wearing my, my james scurlock shirt that i got from uh the culture house uh, shout out to them those those disturbing things aside i think overall omaha is a good place and you know going forward we can make it into a better place if we choose to do that yeah, I mean, as far as bringing up some of those, the ugly elements of whether it's Omaha or anywhere, I wanted to kind of talk about just in terms of your album being called Wasteland. That seems like an evergreen title for people to keep coming back to, you know, it can <laughs> apply to so much. Uh, well, uh, so so we've been doing these uh, these these live streams on Saturdays at 11, 11 a.m. Uh, from my artist page, uh, Facebook dot com slash Andrew Bailey music. The Bailey is spelled with is spelled B A I L I E in case anybody wants to check that out. Um, but so I live in a duplex with my partner and it's a side by side duplex. And so they're renovating the, the next door. Um, and every once in a while they'll bring a dumpster and, and stick it in the driveway. And uh, so what a perfect time to play <laughs> wasteland. And actually, my dude, Seth, uh, who is the original bassist from the Jazz Holes, he was in town this last weekend and actually the weekend before. And we played Wasteland um, and we had a dumpster in the in the driveway. Anyway, uh, Wasteland is actually um, I wrote that song. Uh, and, and I think this is an example of how 
songs can change meaning over time. Um, I was concerned with a friend and concerned that they were getting uh, in, into addictive behavior with drugs. Um, and, I, and I wrote Wasteland. Uh, and, and it was really, it's about addiction. You know, turns out my friend was not into drugs. There was something else going on. Uh, uh, but I wasn't far off because uh, her her mother was 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 also an addict. And when we talked about this song, it it kind of meant something to her as well. But the wasteland, as far as I see it now, it's 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 all addictions. You know, it's it's somebody's personal drug addiction. It's it's somebody that struggles with uh, with alcohol. It's um, it's a society that can't seem to prioritize renewable energy. It's a society that is addicted to, uh, you know, hate and a lack of change. And, um, you know, it is, it is, uh, it is absolutely all of those things. And, you know, that's, that's, uh, I think that's as much as I can say about it, but that's kind of what spawned it. That's where it comes from. I ended up titling the, the record wasteland, uh, because that was um, kind of, I felt the one of the strongest messages uh, and the easiest one to uh, to translate. Yeah, it feels like kind of a manifesto of a song, and then I mean, just naming the album that it draws more attention to try to you know figure out what you're trying to say with that. And so it felt like not necessarily like a message album necessarily, but it does seem like you're concerned about real issues, and you do want those to be something where maybe it's not explicit in all the songs, but you do want to engage with uh, you know real topics, real concerns you have about society. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I would say that's definitely true. Um, but again, what comes out of me comes out of me. And it's, it's, I would say more than me trying to make a message with anything that I'm writing, it is a reflection of my experiences, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's where a lot of people get it wrong. Cause a lot of people want to say, Oh, I like your music. I've had people say this to me. Oh, I like your music, but I hate your politics or whatever. And I'm just like, cool, change the channel. You know, I don't need to be anything for anybody. And that's where I get to be a little selfish. And we all get to be a little selfish. We all get to say, you know what, this is where my line is, where my comfort level is, and I have boundaries. And if you're going to overstep those boundaries, see ya. You know, uh, uh, I don't think it's fair to say that uh, uh, people that have a platform shouldn't have an opinion. Um, So I'll just give an example. Uh, I wrote a song called A Slow Demise that's on um, my record as well. Here's actually a clip of A Slow Demise from the album Wasteland.
yeah, that means a lot to me. And I won't apologize for, you know, conveying that message. And I'll just, I'm not going to say the title of the song because I'm going to let that be uh, a mystery, but I am going to release uh, a seven inch uh, along with a video uh, in the near future as soon as it's ready. Um, And it will upset some people. But I was upset that 126 of my friends were arrested and held in inhumane conditions. I'm upset that I was friends with Jake Gardner, you know, back in the day, back in 2011, 2012, before I moved to New York. I'm upset that he knew my Jewish background and had a swastika tattoo on his arm. You know, I'm upset that he made his money from the hippie community and, and by and large, a left-wing community that came out to, to see Rhythm Collective all the time. So what can I do? I can, yeah, I can say what I say. I can, I can have my opinion and I can not hide it. And if you want to consume my art, you're going to have to be uncomfortable. And that's just what it is because it's not a game. And you know what? My, my, my grandmother, she escaped the Holocaust by a few years. She was eight in 1935 when she came over with her mother. And it was only a British passport that her dad had because he was from London and he came over here to, to New York before then. And he brought his family over after he had worked and they almost left my grandmother with an uncle and aunt who were killed in the Holocaust. I have family that I don't know the names of. I have other family that, that survived the Holocaust that went to Israel that I, I'd never know who they are, you know, never know. And, and even despite all of that, despite not 6 million Jews, but 10 million people being killed inside of four years in gas chambers Despite all of those horrible atrocities in 1952, when my grandmother and grandfather, both Jewish people living in Cleveland, they were able, they were the right color and lived outside of the red lines to get one of those mortgages that allowed them to move to a community called Sheffield Lake. And even though they were the only Jewish family, even though kids too young to know the names to kids too young to know what they were really saying said to my grandfather, why did you kill Jesus? Even though those things happened, even though when I moved to Bellevue, Nebraska in 1998, it, all the kids were saying that's Jewish. You're Jewish. You, you're Jewish. Oh, you're Jewish. You're the dirty Jew. You know, even though all of those things happened, they were still the right color to get that mortgage. And because of that mortgage in 1952, my mom was able to buy a house with my grandfather after my grandmother died. And this was like when I was a baby and they bought a duplex in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. And my grandfather lived upstairs. My mom and I lived downstairs and she was a single mom for 10 years. That equity financed my happy childhood directly. And if they weren't the right color and afforded that loan, who knows? It's just, we all, if we believe that, we all have to do what we have to do. And one of the things that I have is a platform that like maybe a few people pay attention to. And if that's the case, then I got to do what I have to do. But again, the songs are just going to come out and they're going to be what they are. And yeah, our our world, our experiences, they're going to inform that, Mm -hmm. you know, so I won't apologize for that ever. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you go between, I mean, it sounds like you're saying music is part of your way of addressing a lot of real societal problems and trying to whatever. I mean, 
I guess I'm, I'm. How do you see the difference between you don't want your songs to have one specific reaction? You don't want people to react to them one way, but at the same time, it sounds like there is a little bit more intention uh, behind the music in the sense that there is maybe one thing that's on your mind or a couple of things that you're reacting to. I mean, so like if you're responding a year ago, a year ago, I would have never had this conversation publicly. Okay. So I think it's more about letting people in and letting people know who I am mm -hmm. than it is about trying to tell anybody anything. Because I, I have plenty of songs that are not about anything like like that. And uh, uh, to be honest, a lot of my songs are cobbled together and have many different meanings and many different things that were on my mind. They're kind of a reflection of maybe an emotional state that I was in. Um, and, and then, yeah, I have some songs that, uh, are also reflections of emotional states that I was in, but just happen to, you know, speak to some of these things that mm -hmm. we're talking about right now. So in some ways, it kind of a sense of empathy then. So by understanding you better, maybe someone will look at an issue differently if it's one of the songs that's more related to, you know, say our current situation. See, that's the part that, that takes that audience to, um, you know, create the art and close that loop. Okay. I can't speak for that. If somebody wants to take that away from it, that's their right to do it. I'm when when I put lyrics together or a song together, I might not even. And, and in the case of the song "A Slow De A Slow Demise," I've I've uh, I wrote that about uh, the first iteration of that about 2009 2010, and I remember specifically what I was feeling uh, uh, when I wrote that song. Um, I think it was, I think it had to do with, I expected Obama to get us out of all the wars, <laughs> naively. <laughs> and I was very upset one day that it wasn't happening. And, and we were starting new conflicts. And, uh, you know, so that was my emotional state. And so that song isn't speaking directly to that. But that's kind of what came out. And again, I think I'm a, uh, anything that I put together is going to be a reflection of um my experiences and so those are my experiences as well um and and yeah it it's what's going on in in our city in our country in our world it's it's some uh, people are experiencing some strong trauma and i've had some friends that have experienced some serious trauma from police brutality from uh, uh violence from uh people that don't agree with them. I do think, I do think, especially from my family perspective, I think it's important to recognize that a lot of the stuff that's going on right now, it leads to one thing, you know, it leads to people killing people who don't agree with them in mass. And when these ideas are allowed to spread like wildfire, and especially when the economy tanks for whatever reason, but we're experiencing that right now, the scapegoating is huge. It's, it's what happens. And uh, whether it's whether it's one race or one religion or just maybe poor and homeless people, you know, uh, which a lot of us have a chance of being here and figuring out what that's like pretty soon. I don't know how how I'm supposed to be quiet and just just write like songs that, you know, whatever. Right. A little pop song and try and and, and hire a publicist for ten thousand dollars or something and and try to and try to make a go of this music thing like that's clearly not what it's about anymore. You know, I'll be fine. I've, I'm cool. I'm not trying to be a star. You know, uh, I'm just going to write based on what comes out.
based on my experiences. And I, I'm done shutting the f*** up. Andrew Bailey's album Wasteland can be heard on Spotify or purchased wherever you get music. Like so many other musicians during this pandemic, he's had to adapt because concerts aren't really happening right now. His adaptation is neighborhood concerts. He, along with Ali Peeler and David Hawkins, play songs from a safe distance from each other out to the neighborhood. They collect money, and that money goes toward charitable causes. Here's a clip of them playing one of their neighborhood concerts. Stuart Chittenden has a show on 101.3 Mind and Soul Radio, uh, and it's also a podcast. It's called Lives, um, and uh, wrote uh, a, a little piece of music uh, the, for intro music, and it became kind of this larger composition, and uh, we're going to play that for you now. So thank you, Stuart, for uh, the spark. Catch Andrew Bailey's live streams on his Facebook page at Andrew Bailey Music. Bailey is spelled B A I L I E. So that's A N D R E W B A I L I E M U S I C. Andrew Bailey Music. Like so many other musicians, he's had to find ways to perform and to express the turmoil of this year through his art. You can find updates about his new single, his album Wasteland and live shows whenever those might start to become a thing again at his website, also called Andrew Bailey Music, this time andrewbaileymusic.com. I'm going to leave some of his stream up, some of the music, as I do the credits here as well. So if you like this, it's not our usual songs by the real Zebos. it is Andrew Bailey. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork and website are done by Ben Matukowitz. You can find our backlog of episodes wherever you get podcasts. That includes conversations with local politicians, with artists, with filmmakers, with authors, and more. 
This October, we'll be replaying several of our conversations with the people who want to represent you in the federal government. So throughout the year, I've talked to people like Don Bacon, Kara Eastman, Kate Bowles, and there's a couple upcoming ones that I don't want to spoil yet. But there will be some more, and we'll play them again as you get close to figuring out who you want to vote for to represent you. You can find these conversations anytime on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, please give us a review. It helps people find the show and helps us reach a larger audience. As always, I appreciate you listening to Riverside Chats so much. Next week, I'll be having a conversation with Alicia Shelton, who's in the middle of a particularly complicated and messy Senate run. Stay tuned for that next Monday at noon. I'm Tom Noblock. This has been Riverside Chats. Playing us out here is my guest from today, Andrew Bailey.